0: Well, good morning. You guys are a friendly service. The first service is friendly too. Just letting you know that. We'll be praying for Pastor Hayden and Kayla as they are on a well-deserved vacation right now. We're relaxing in Florida. And it reminded me, as they, uh, no idea how close they are to the ocean, but it reminded me where I came from. I came from the West Coast. I'm originally from the Southern California, South Orange County specifically, and I grew up and was raised near, right near the beach. I had five minutes from it, I was in the water consistently, and to Pastor Hayden's chagrin, because he really hates sharks, if you're out there, like there's a different story. He's the animal guy. One of my favorite social media profiles has a deal with, uh, I call it surfer humor, what I mean by that, it's humor because, it's humorous because there's people who have never really been to the ocean or don't even go to the ocean that much, and they do things thinking they're completely safe, thinking that they're totally okay, that their actions are in their own mind justified that nothing's gonna, nothing bad's gonna happen. And for those of us who know, we do unfortunately do take pleasure in their demise. For example, this profile has videos sent to them all the time for, uh, of you know people walking out in the water wanting a good you know, social media post or a profile picture. And they st- walk into the water. They have the waves behind them. They're taking either a selfie or having someone take a picture. The reason why you're not laughing because you don't know, that is a dumb idea. Why on earth would you turn your back to four, or five, s- five, six foot waves as they pummel you into the ground? Like it d- happened in the video. Another w- one is that uh, they like to stand by the cliffs where they have the waves crashing against the rocks and it sprays water everywhere. Like, oh, this is really cool. How epic would it be to have a photo of me standing there and have an epic splash of water coming behind me like I'm Poseidon. <laughs> the problem is that's a stupid idea too. And the person filming it knows that it's a dumb idea and so they film it knowing what's going to happen. Sure enough, one big wave, that's all it takes, smacks the back of them and they fall flat on their face on two really sharp, hard rock. So usually I'm cringing as I'm laughing. But the thing is that they think they're completely fine. Their life is okay. And unfortunately, they're given no warning. There's someone who knows. And instead of giving a warning, they pull up their phone to go, this is going to be pretty hilarious. Well, our text this morning, as you can please turn back to Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26, this is Jesus' warning. To us this morning, thinking that we're okay, life is fine, I'm doing pretty good. All things considered, I'm a pretty good person. Well, Jesus, with a megaphone, is going to tell us, you're in danger. To remind us of the scriptural context as we continue our series in the summer on the mount, remember last week's sermon, what Pastor Hayden taught on, Talking about how the righteousness that God demands to enter his kingdom must exceed the scribes and Pharisees. And as he talked about, the exceeding is that the scribes and Pharisees were so concerned to follow every single 613 laws of Moses externally. But Jesus is saying they were failing internally as they were failing. If they were the standard that we need to be, to be passed, we need to, to surpass, excuse me, then we all are guilty. We all fail the law. Knowing that, and you know, that scripture is going to reveal that Jesus even says, so last week, Jesus said, not last week, he said a couple thousand years ago, and he wrote it, you know, Matthew wrote it down. He said, I'm here to fulfill the law. And so what Matthew wrote down is Jesus said, he's giving us six examples of how our righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees. The implication is that we all fail, all six. Well, that's the point. Working backwards for the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about how we do not love others, how we retaliate, how we do not keep our word, how we fail even at divorce, how we all commit sexual sin, and in this morning's topic, how we all commit murder. What Jesus is doing to his listeners. Here is of the original people who are sitting down as he was preaching on the, on the mount. And what Matthew recorded for us to read is to, for, to be used by God to smash out any self-righteousness that we have in our lives. To hammer it out. I'm gonna warn you, Compass, next six weeks are going to be hard. They're going to be hard, but they're gonna be good. Because God, for the Christian, is working all things together for good. That's Romans 8, 28, right? But what, what is that good? Well, Romans eight twenty-nine defines what the good is. The good isn't the house, the boats, and the retirement account. The good is, in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son, which implies, meaning, we're not in the image of his son. Now, we are in God's image, and we'll talk about that in a second, but we are a corrupt, tainted image that Jesus needs to redeem And in doing so, he justifies us, he saves us. And for the rest of our lives, he hammers out the sinful unrighteousness of our lives and puts on his good, perfect righteousness. Until one day, we get to experience perfection and glory. Well, that's on the other side of this life. But this morning, we need to deal with our murderous hearts in order for us to sufficiently deal with the hatred of our hearts, we must trust in one thing alone. That's our main point today. Trust in the righteousness of Christ. His perfection. His, His way of fulfilling everything that God desired. That's what righteousness means. Doing what God wants. He fulfilled it perfectly and we need His goodness imputed to be placed into, onto, to surround, to consume us. So that one, we can have our guilt cleansed, and also to empower us to love others. Another way of saying this is to obey the law. The law is summed up in two ways, right? To love God and to love others. Well, for murdering, we're not loving others very well, are we? And here's, here's the warning that Jesus is going to give us this morning. The warning is if you and I fail to understand the gravity of our murderous hatred. In our hearts, we are in danger of experiencing the discipline of God. And for some of you who may think you're right with God, God's saying, you are not right with me, and you are actually in danger of eternal judgment. So we need to take Jesus' warning seriously as he warns us of our life and how we are conducting it. So let's put our eyes on verse 21. Let's have our Bibles open. Let's have our our tablets, our phones turned there. Our eyeballs should be on the text of Scripture. If we're going to take Jesus' warning seriously, we're not going to have eyes on me, not eyes on the screen, eyes on God's word. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now right away, we need to observe a couple things. The first words... Was of Jesus, was not quoting the Old Testament yet. He does. He, you shall not murder is a quotation directly from the Decalogue, the, the Law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Exodus twenty thirteen. 13, you shall not murder, was given to Israel, the, the generation that left Egypt, given to Israel you know, through Moses as he came down from Mount Sinai. Well, what happened to them? They were faithless. They disobeyed God. And only two people from that generation survived, Caleb and Joshua, and they're only the ones that survived and are able to enter the promised land. Hence why in Deuteronomy 5.17, in Deuteronomy 5, you have the, re, the, the repeat of the Ten Commandments. And so we go, why does, why does God repeat himself in, the, in Deuteronomy? Well, he's repeating himself, but to two different audiences. The first audience in Exodus, that generation died out. There's a new audience in Deuteronomy, the faithful generation, that's going to go and take the promised land. And so he tells them, you shall not murder. Now, to clarify, this is not a generalization of you shall not kill. He's not talking about self-defense. He's not talking about just war. He's not talking accidental manslaughter where something goes wrong and something horrible happens. He's not talking about that. He's talking about planned out Wicked murder, the taking of one's life. I mean, that can range from gang warfare, homicide, abortion, and suicide. Suicide is just the murder of self. I hope you understand that. And so he's saying, you should not murder, but we have to understand, what are the first words? You have heard it was said to those of old, the the ancients, the people who were well before you. Now, this is where we need to slow down and understand. Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament. Some will say he's elevating the law. He's putting it in a new place. And I'm saying, no, he is not. But Pastor Hayden talked about this last week. He's taking what man added to the law and stripping it away to reveal what the law was in the first place. It never changed. And we're gonna see this throughout this morning. The law never changed. Man's opinion on the law changed. And that is what he's challenging Right here, you have heard it was said to those of old. To help us get some context of who Jesus is talking to, the, to the sandals of the first century Jewish listener and even, to the, even some of the Gentiles who were maybe there because you know, remember the Sermon on the Mount, you have the nations, people from Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and beyond the Jordan all coming to hear Jesus. So who is he talking to? Now we might assume that these people probably knew Hebrew fluently. That would be a mistake on our part. They probably were familiar with Hebrew as more of a religious language. The best way that we can think about it is how we see Latin. A lot of you can maybe say some Latin words. Maybe a few of you can actually speak Latin, but a lot of us don't even understand Latin. To compare is like what Martin Lloyd-Jones correctly understood, is like to compare this audience to the audience of the 16th century when the Reformation happened. You see, the Roman Catholic Church, they only spoke and preached in Latin. They only taught in Latin. And so the audience, having no idea what was being said, they're hearing the word of God said, but they have no idea what it's saying. The other guy's babbling on in a language they don't know. Why? Because they speak German, they speak French, Italian, English, Russian. But they don't know what's being said, because it's speaking in a language they don't understand. In the same way the, as they were trusting the priests to give them the truth, and a lot of times the priests weren't giving them the truth. Hence why the Reformation. And at this time, the rabbis were speaking in Hebrew and going on in Hebrew, and the people were going, "I, I kind of have an idea what's going on, but a lot of times I really don't." And so Jesus is talking to God and saying, "You are trusting in the rabbinic tradition that is not teaching the truth. This is what the truth is. Because to kind of clarify, what language did they speak? They spoke Aramaic. That was the the common language of the time in the first century in that region. They spoke Aramaic. And Hebrew is what Latin was to us. So he's trying to clarify to say, hey, I'm challenging the understanding and the interpretations of old on the truth of God's law. And the truth of God's law is correct. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The end of verse 21 Whoever murders would be liable to, liable to judgment. But what is this judgment? Well, jot down, you're going to have your hand cramping by the end of this sermon, by the way. There's no life group next week, so it's all a devotional stuff. So we have a lot of time to review. So get your pencils ready. If you miss a verse, don't worry, we're recording it. You can write down Exodus 21, 12 through 14. Exodus 21, 12 through 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Now, there's a, a little clause there. If he did not lie in wait for him, it was not planned, it was by accident, you know, then I have a, pl- a place for him to flee, a city of refuge. But verse 14, but if any man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from an altar that he may die. God takes murder so seriously, even if they're in the holy of holies, holding on to the altar of God, so you strip him out and you execute him, for he has shed man's blood. Furthermore, write down Numbers 35, 30 to 34. Numbers 35, 30 to 34. Let's get a, we need to get a clear picture of how God sees murder in order to really understand Jesus' words coming. If anyone kills a person, their murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of, of, of witnesses. But no person should be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Essentially, we can't just play a name blame game. We actually need confirmation this actually happened because it's such a big deal. And we'll get to why in just a moment. But this, look at this in verse 31. If you, have, you were able to turn there or jot this down. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom, even if he's fled to a city of refuge or a place where people can hide away and, and wait you need to return him and put, in, put him put to death. Why, verse thirty three? You should not pollute the land in which you live, for the blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the for the for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except. By the blood of the one who has shed it, meaning there's no amount of oxen, there's no amount of sheep, there's no amount of goats or turtle doves that can cover the cost of shedding man's blood. There is no atonement, there is no mercy, that there, there, there has to be paid according to God's law. Now, we'll talk about mercy in just a moment. But he, The law is trying to say, and what Jesus' listeners would agree agreed to, is like, yeah, murder is bad. Like, yeah, we, we get the law, Jesus. He's saying The only payment for murder is no grain offering, no guilt offering, no peace offering. It's this person's death. And that's just the earthly consequences that God has. Now these eternal consequences, we we find that in Revelation 21.8. For the murderer, what is their portion? What is the murderer's portion? The lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So God takes murder extremely seriously. And he would have agreed with that statement. And so when Jesus says these next words in verse 22 of Matthew 5, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. You see, it's the same penalty. Murder is liable to judgment. Anger is liable to judgment. God takes murder at a, he takes murder as a very large and big deal. But now why? You need to write down why. Genesis 9:6. This is why God takes murder so seriously. Genesis 9:6. He says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So what we do when we murder, murder is probably the greatest sin against God. Why? Because you understand, you and I, I'm in God's image, you're in God's image. And if I had to say, I hate you so much, I'm going to take the life that God has given you from you, Knowing that you're in God's image, I'm not just attacking them, I'm attacking God. I hate God so much that I want to stamp out his image. And God's saying, I will have none of that. That's what he thinks of murder. But the thing is, Jesus reveals he's comparing anger to murder. Furthermore, whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. The word insults is the Greek word Raka and there's no really good translated word for it. Essentially, the best way that commentators have explained it is it means kind of brainless idiot. You say, you're such a brainless idiot. You have no worth, you have no mind. God has a mind and you lack it. He says, you're liable to counsel. And what is the counsel? That's the Greek word for Sanhedrin. It's the Sanhedrin was the ruling uh, governing class of the Jews who de- de- uh, determined, all right, here's the con- here's your crime, here's the consequence. And so he said, if you slander someone, saying they lack any mind, you're insulting the image of God and you are deserve of punishment. And furthermore, he continues in verse 22, whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. Now you fool is the Greek word morose, which we actually we get, the Greek, we get the word moron. So we call someone moron, and the, the way that uh, is, you know, I think best explained with, with moron, with moros, moron, is essentially, yes, you're calling someone dull and, and stupid, but you're also calling them godless. So you're calling them a godless idiot. You're saying that you have no mind, they have no mind, and one is, what is the punishment for that? They'd be liable to the hell of fire. Again, Jesus takes murder seriously, but how, how does Jesus get from the action of murder, and all of a sudden, I have hatred in my heart. Like, how does Jesus bridge that gap? Well, the thing is, it's, it's nothing new. Scripture has always pointed that anger leads to murder. That murder, it doesn't just happen spontaneously. It begins with the murder of someone in the heart. Now, prayerfully, none of you have, have taken someone else's life, but unfortunately for you and I, we have all taken the lives of people in our own hearts, and our own imaginations, maybe under our breaths. Murder has always been there throughout the Old Testament through anger. Where did the murder of Abel begin in Cain? Was it through the action? What did Pastor Hayden say last week? Through his anger. What about Joseph's brothers when they tried to murder him but instead pretend that they murdered him and sold him to slavery? Where did that begin? Did it begin with the act? No, it began with Genesis 37.4. They saw his brother and they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Furthermore, what about Saul and David? Where did David or what did Saul's intent to murder David for 20 years? Where did that begin? His hatred and anger toward David. What Jesus is trying to say is that we are all guilty of murder because we murder people in our heart. And as we learned about last week, that the law, was, the law of God is always pointing to the heart. To prove it, you can jot down Leviticus 19, 17. You should not hate your brother in your heart. Well, there you go. Even the law says you can't hate your brother in your heart. The problem is is that we all do. And the problem is that we deserve the punishment of the death penalty, the judgment of the council. We also deserve the judgment of the hell of fire. To kind of really weigh down the significance upon our shoulders, and don't worry, there is hope, but we have to sit through our mess a little bit, It's to understand what it means by hell of fire. The word hell, you might see a note in your Bible, and it says, it says down below in the footnote or maybe somewhere in your study notes, it says Gehenna. The Gehenna of fire. Now you're like, what on earth is Gehenna? Did you cough? No, Gehenna is derived from this word hinnom. And you understand is the history of this word is actually a history of a place. Gehenna is actually a real place that you can visit in Israel today. It's a valley near Jerusalem where a lot of things happened. And God wants us to recall the history of Gehenna to paint a very vivid and graphic image of the punishment that you and I deserve for the murder of our, in our hearts. It begins with King Ahaz and King Manasseh when they wanted to, they raised altars to Molech. I really know you don't really want to know how they worshiped Moloch, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The way that you would have your prayers heard by Moloch was to grab one of your children and to burn them alive to Moloch and to overcome their screams, you have to scream louder to have your prayers heard to this wicked pagan idol. So you have to recall this when he talks about the hellfire, the screams of an agony of a child. Furthermore, the reformer just King Josiah came and thankfully wiped, off, wiped out the worship of Molech. He took those statues and he, the Bible says smashed them into dust. Praise the Lord. And with Josiah does to mock them, he turned uh, Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, to a garbage heap. The way they put their waste so not only are you supposed to remember the, the wickedness, of the, the sacrifice of children, you're supposed to remember the unclean manner of this place, and furthermore, like our garbage today, they, what do we do with the garbage? They burn it to get rid of it. They did the same thing. But in the valley of Hinn and Gehenna, this fire never went out because it's a garbage heap. You need to get rid of it. And so we have a vivid picture of an of a everlasting fire, which, funny enough, it turns out there's a worm that, that grew there and lived there. It was kind of hard to kill, it turned out. Well, that's why Jesus says in Mark, there's the worm of Gehenna that's gonna eat the flesh of those who are there. This is how God views murder. That murder, the only punishment for, the the, the just punishment for our murder is to have the anguish screams of an eternal fire and torment for what we have done against the image of God. That is the punishment for murder. And as Jesus is saying, this is also the punishment of murder in our own hearts. Now, there's a difference between maybe you and I and Adolf Hitler. The consequences are different maybe here on earth. And the consequences experienced in hell are different. It's different anguish. It's a different punishment, but still punishment. You have questions about that, about the differences of... Hell is not a communist state, by the way. You're going to be judged according to what you have done. So it's actually one of the most capitalistic places in existence. You get what you deserve. We, I get what I deserve. If you have questions on that, you can scan your worksheet and say, hey, I have questions. And we might be able to answer that maybe in future podcasts. But the point we're trying to drive home is that God hates murder. And also God sees the murder in our hearts. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 1 John 2, 9. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he does not, know, does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God who he has not seen. And finally, 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus is trying to help us see that we are condemned and that we are in desperate need of a savior. He's also trying to show us the gravity of the sin of our anger what she says is really murder. I hope this uncomfortable feeling we might be feeling right now is actually to prove the point for point number one. We, you, and I need to abhor our unrighteous anger. When we see it for what it is, we should abhor our unrighteous anger. My wife Candace is is pregnant with our second child, and. Um, and now the whole church knows, and so now everyone knows. So then Candace can say, "Who have you told everyone? First service and second, and online." But with pregnancy, she has gained superpowers once again, especially the superpower of smell. The woman get it. I, I still don't. I'm more confused. I feel like I'm being gaslit half the time. I get a call from her yesterday saying, Evan, the car smells terrible. I'm like, oh, this little Mazda that I drive, this little four-cylinder car that I, you know, I, I drive with, with joy. You can ask me later. She's like, it smells terrible. It smells like there's a leak. There's a like gas. There's fumes in the car. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I drive this thing every day. And every once in a while, it smells gas, but I think it's just a big Texas truck in front of me. So I sit behind them just like perfect you know, eye level my tiny little Mazda. She said, no, there's something wrong. Well, that smell that she abhorred led her to examine to see, is there something wrong? And sure enough, there's a leak. And sure enough, I'm taking it to a mechanic tomorrow. The only way that she's able to see the problem is of her abhorrence to the stench that she could smell. The problem is I couldn't find the problem because I didn't even notice the stench. I was too busy looking around, trying to make sure everything's Okay. The problem for you and I, we need to, in order for us to abhor unrighteous anger, we need to help ourselves to to recognize we need to actually smell it for what it is. The problem is, going back to the problem, we like to get Febreze and kind of spray around it. Get those little things you plug into the walls and kind of make the room smell good. It's like, is that mold? Don't don't smell it. Smell the, the Malibu mild for me right now. The problem is we like to cover the stench of our hatred. But what I need to do is to remove that fake scent and to say, we need to smell our sin for what it is. God smells it and hates it. We need to smell it and hate it. So we need to stop justifying and recategorizing our anger. We need to stop saying, I'm not angry, I'm just upset. Oh, I just lost my cool. I'm just really annoyed right now. I'm I'm just frustrated. I'm just ticked off. I'm just really bothered right now. I've had it up with this person. I've had it up to here with this situation. I've had it up to here to these circumstances. I'm just venting. Just listen to me. I'm just venting. I'm just really hurt. I don't deserve this. I just want to be honest. I think the worst of all is that we say, my anger is righteous. Well, to help us understand what righteous anger is, I think Robert Jones in his book, Uprooting Anger, which would be a good book for us to sell in the bookstore, which we might, he summarizes the scriptures into three criteria of what righteous anger is. Because I think it's helpful to know, because the Bible clearly says, be angry and do not sin. So what's the implication? I can be angry and not sin. Well, furthermore, God is angry. Jesus was angry. So not all anger is murder, but a lot of it is. So what's the three criteria? Number one, righteous anger. Number one, reacts against actual sin. Not your preferences. Not my preferences. To actual sin. Number two, righteous anger focuses on God's kingdom, God's rights, and God's concerns. Not on my kingdom, not on my rights, and not on my concerns. It's always focused on God. And number three, righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. To quote Robert Jones, righteous anger remains self-controlled. It, remains, it keeps its head without cursing, screaming, raging, or flying off the handle. Nor does it spiral down in self-pity or despair. It does not ignore people. It does not snub people. It does not withdraw from people. Instead, righteous anger carries with it the twin qualities of confidence and self-control. Christ-like anger is not an all-consuming and myopic, but is channeled to sober and earnest ends. He continues, righteous anger leads to godly expressions of worship, ministry, and obedience. It shows concerns for the well-being of others. Now my question to you, the anger that you have felt this morning, yesterday, last evening, last week, last month, three years ago, the thing that you're holding on to still, is that righteous anger? I bet it isn't. So we have to deal with it. So what are we supposed to do? How can we abhor our unrighteous anger? Well, there, is, there are two things you can do. Actually, three things, excuse me, three things. One, we need to see our anger for what it truly is. God, we need to smell how hideous it is. We're guilty of not just the explosive anger, but really the majority of us in this room are really guilty of that slow burn anger. The thing that we just hold on to, and let it simmer and sit, never address. Like the hot coals, you just kind of let it sit there. Maybe fuel it every once in a while. Make it a little pet and name it. Those, that is the, the anger that we're guilty of the ventilation, and the internalization. We're guilty of bitterness, which is a form of anger, you know, holding on to this long-standing resentment. We're guilty of wrath, just having agitated anger towards someone else. We're guilty of anger, as Ephesians 4 says, and I like how John MacArthur put it, the anger is the inner deep resentment that seethes and smolders and often unnoticed by others. We're guilty of clamor. This is our loud strife and shouting matches between us, our spouses, our kids to one another. We're guilty of slander, speaking evil of someone to tear down their reputation, to make them look terrible and to exalt me. We're guilty of malice, wishing evil on others. Now, I have to clarify, I'm not saying we don't wish the justice of God. That's a good thing. The problem is we like to imagine their demise by our own hands or by the hands of others. So we're all guilty, Pastor Evan. we get it. So, okay, now what? Number two, we need to respond to the gospel. Respond to the gospel. Because the gospel swashes us. The gospel sanctifies us. The gospel justifies us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The most practical way for you and I to begin to handle our anger is to get our hands and knees and come before King Jesus. You have to be a born-again believer. You can't be a person who says, I've always been a Christian. Well, that's not biblically true. The Bible says we are born into sin. So you gotta figure out when you are born again, or if you're not born again, become born again. How do you become born again? If you haven't repented and surrendered your life to God and say, my goodness is nothing, I cannot trust in it, and I'm turning to Christ, his perfect righteousness to cover my sins, that is how you are saved. You believe that Jesus is the Christ by turning from yourself and turning to him. And then and only then can you have the power, because it's not your power, it's the Holy Spirit's power in you, because now Jesus has washed you clean through his blood. And then, with the Holy Spirit, then you can do number three. But before we get to number three, you have to understand, if you're not a Christian this morning, these steps are gonna be nice and helpful for a season, but they're not gonna help. Really, I'm going to turn you into a Pharisee. Unless you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, unless you surrender your life to Christ, these practical things are not going to be of any help. But for the believer in the room, what can we do? Here are some practical ways. I need you to turn to James chapter one. Plenty of passages we can turn to, but James is such a helpful and clear, so i love to hear those pages turning, those tablets tapping, the thumbs on our, on our phone, quickly getting to James chapter one. There are eight ways, practical eight practical strategies that we can overcome our anger. You look at how I almost turned to scripture. It's not 10 steps with Pastor Evan. Here's eight things that we're gonna find in James chapter one. Beginning in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, here's number one, be quick to hear. So one, one strategy, be quick to hear. A lot of times with anger, we need to ask questions. As Robert Jones puts these three questions, do I want something right now more than God? Am I willing to sin right now to get what I want? Is there a good thing that's become an idol in my heart? We need to be quick to hear what is going on. We also need to be, number two, slow to speak. We need to seek to put on God's characteristics of humility and to apply them in thought and our actions. Number three is we need to be slow to anger. This is where Robert Jones said you need to pray for God's help. Pray for God's help. When you start to feel the embers of your anger coming, stop, drop, and pray. We're continuing on in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So this is number four. Number one, quick to hear. Two, slow to speak. Three, slow to anger. Four, remember man's anger is never good. The the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our anger produces nothing good. When we curse under our breath at the drivers, when we flip the bird to somewhere else, when we angrily cuss someone out, or we holding bitterness in our hearts towards someone, when we're unforgiving, it produces nothing good to punch a pillow, to punch a wall, to do anything except to turn to Christ. That is the only solution for you. And actually, it's gonna be part of the solution in the next couple steps. Verse 21, what's the next step? To put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Number five, we need to put away, put away sin and evil. Put away sin and evil. And receive with meekness and humility the implanted word. What does that implanted word mean? It means the word of God. This, this is why we're constantly saying, go to your Bibles. What is the Bible saying? What does God have to say about that in his word? Why? Because it is able to save your soul. Not just a justification, but practically in this text it's saying, to save your soul from your sin. When you're angry, you want to lash out. Start, Bible, Bible, what does it say? Okay, be patient, kind, God." it. It's able to save us from our souls. So number six, humbly receive God's word, knowing it saves. Humbly receive God's word, knowing it saves. And the last two come from the last, uh, verse 22. Something that's familiar, that's funny enough, it has to deal with anger. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. So number seven, be applicators of God's word. Pastor Hayden and I always talk about this. Don't be commentators. We want you to be accurate. Be applicators. Because knowledge just puffs up. But wisdom applies, and so be applicators of God's word, number seven. And number eight comes from make sure we're not deceiving ourselves. So number eight, do not be self-deceived. So in order for us to deal with our anger, we have to see for, we have to smell it for what it is. We have to turn to the gospel, respond to it, and, and and then use these practical biblical strategies to overcome our anger. Now, Jesus continues he says, all right, now we're all guilty of anger. Jesus, now, okay, got it. He goes, now I want to show you how it's expressed, how it, how it hinders our worship and how it hinders our relationships with one another. Go back to Matthew chapter five with me to verse 23. Jesus continues, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We, kind of, we need to get conscious. We, kind of keep, we, we see the flow of thought, but I think it would be good for us to slow down and kind of get our, shoe, our feet into the sandals of the first century. The offering that we're bringing as a gift to the altar. You remember, for them, altar, the worship at the temple is the biggest thing for them. From the, the common Jew to the, the highest of the high priests, the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, worship at the temple was the biggest deal. Why? Because the temple represented God's presence. The Bible talks about how the God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, so the temples where they can be close with God, the sacrificial system was to help us to get closer and closer and closer to God, to point to Christ as the ultimate sacrifice, but that's another passage for another sermon. The problem was that they were so focused on just the external aspects of, of the worship of sacrificing or temple worship, they're always focused on the external, not concerned about the, in, in, uh, the internal or the heart. It's also important to them because they understood that the sacrifices are making atonement for them, that this animal is dying in their place. So this significant event, and they remember something that, that they're guilty of. That's the point. They know that they're guilty of something that their brother has against them, and then they are to drop their gift and go. Now to bring in some more context, you know, the, imagine, remember Jesus is where in Galilee. He's about 80 to 100 miles north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So imagine with me, Hunt, Texas is about 100 miles away. I confirmed that with the Texan. Hunt, Texas is about 100 miles away. Let's say you live in Hunt, Texas, you came to New Braunfels and realize you forgot something that's so important, you need to walk 100 miles back to Hunt, Texas, grab it, then walk another 100 miles back to go do what you want to do here in New Braunfels. Float, Slitterbahn, visit Compass Bible Church. The point that he's trying to make is if you remember something that a brother has against you, you need to drop the, even though the animal might be ready to slaughter by the priest, it's at the altar, it's, been, it's passed the test, it's perfectly unblemished, it's ready to go. He's saying, you better stop right there, walk 100 miles back to Galilee, go reconcile, and walk, then walk 100 miles back, and then finish your sacrifice. Now, many mistakenly say, oh, this is Jesus elevating the law. What I mean by that, yeah, the the, the law is exalted. Jesus has not moved it. He's just, again, stripping away the nonsense and saying, this is what it looks like the whole time. To prove it to you, I need you to turn to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, towards the beginning of your Bible, if you just want to jot down Leviticus 6, 1 through 7, by all means, Leviticus 6, 1 through 7, this is nothing new. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins or commits a breach of faith against the Lord by, doing a, by deceiving their neighbor to having found something and lied to them, saying, oh, I haven't found it, I don't know where your ox went, really, it's in my barn. If he has sinned against him and is, is, and is guilty, what is, he, what is he supposed to do? Verse 4, if he has sinned and he has realized his guilt and restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or a lost the thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely. What should he do first? He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on what? The day he realizes his guilt. Does he do the sacrifice first? No. When he realizes it, he goes as quickly as possible to reconcile then he shall bring to the priest his compensation to the Lord, a ram without blemish, or out of his flock, or the equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. You notice the pattern there? God's saying, go reconcile with man before you come and worship me. Because really, God's saying, that is true worship. So Jesus is not revealing anything new. He's just saying, you guys missed the point. You listen to the tradition of men thinking, just because you haven't killed someone, murdered someone, you think you're fine. And Jesus is saying, no, you are guilty, and this is what it looks like to you right now. It's always been about the heart. As Craig Blomberg commented, therefore, we read Jesus' words, people should take decisive action, however drastic, to initiate reconciliation with their adversaries, lest God inflict on them severe judgment. Because here's the thing, right now you guys look pretty pure to me, before me. You're sitting listening carefully, you're taking notes, you have your Bibles open, you sang some songs, you paid attention to Jordan as he you know, told you the announcements. You're going to flip this building, you're going to serve well. So on the outside, you look pure in my eyes. But as Proverbs 16.2 says, but God weighs the spirit. Or as he says in Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind and to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The thing is, God knows your heart right now. He knows it. We need to understand about God. He hates fake worship. Fake worship being, you're here externally, we're going through the rhythms, and your heart is far from God. It's against someone. You have a broken relationship with someone. Probably you're even guilty of it too. You can write down Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. You're gonna read this. There's no life group this week, but you're gonna do some devotional time. You're gonna read this, Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. But God says, he's talking to Israel who's bringing their offerings to him, to the temple, but it's also worshiping other gods. He says, I hate your sacrifice. I'm, I'm sick of all your offerings. But I love what Jeremiah, what God says in Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swell, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing this, all these abominations? Can we really think that we are worshiping God when we have unreconciled relationships outside of this building, in our homes? outside of our homes, at our work, and say, oh, I'm, I'm saved by Christ. Yet yeah, you were saved by Christ through the gospel, yes. But God is trying to communicate to you that he hates your worship right now. He doesn't even consider it worship because you're not worshiping him by reconciling with this other person. And so what Jesus is emphasizing, the urgency, you need to go right now, leave this place of worship, and go be reconciled because that is true worship. Or as John MacArthur put it, as he was commenting on this text, regardless who is responsible for the break break in relationship. And often there's guilt on both sides. We should determine to make reconciliation before we come before, before God to worship. True worship is not enhanced by better music, by better prayers, by better architecture, or by even better preaching. True worship is enhanced by the better relationships between those who come to worship. Worship may be improved by staying away from church until we have made things right with those with whom we know our relationship is strained or broken. Pay attention. It's not, think, it's not people you assume maybe or think, I don't, I don't know. It's people that I know I'm guilty and I need to go right now. I need to leave this auditorium. I need to go out those double doors and make a phone call, a text, or a conversation happen. No matter how far away this person is or how many years ago it was, you know you're guilty. You need to, point number two, pursue proper worship through your reconciliation with others. Being from Southern California, again, I grew up next to the beach. I Don't label me as a surfer. Not because I don't like surfers. I just, I'm not a surfer. I maybe surf, attempted to surf maybe three to four times max in my life. I mean, attempted meaning I got on a board, my shoulders were aching as I paddled out, and then a wave crashed, and I lost my board, and it hit me in the head, all right? That's that's what my surfing experience was like. However, in college, I presented myself as a surfer of surfers. When I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you know, a thousand miles away, no one knew my life, so I was presenting myself as, yeah, I'm a surfer, dude. Yeah, I used to tame giants back home. (laughs) The problem is, is how can I call myself a genuine surfer, and then all I, because all that I did was I grabbed my friend's surfboard, I posed for a picture on the beach, and posted it on my Facebook. How can I call myself a genuine surfer? Because I'm not. How can we say we are you know, a part of God's ministry of reconciliation when we refuse to reconcile with others? We're saying, you need to be reconciled to Jesus by a line of people I'm not reconciled with. How can we say that we're a part of the mission of reconciliation if we're not reconciling with one another? So how can, then, can we pursue proper worship? Well, first and foremost, it's remembering the, 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 the goal of it, the purpose is to glorify God. So two ways, you can, two ways you can pursue proper worship is one, be reconciled to God. And again, it starts at the gospel. We have to start at the gospel. We have to start at Jesus Christ because he is the only person that has never murdered. He is the only person that has never murdered in his heart. And that's why he did it, so that he can impute and give us his perfect righteousness to be given to give into us, so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our filth any longer, that he wants to send to the hellfire. Instead, he sees his perfect son's righteousness. This is why it's so important that we are born-again believers. It's so important that we turn to Christ, because only through Christ can we do anything else in this life. So we need to reconciled to God first, and then as we are Christians, we have to reconcile with others God's way. That's the second thing. Reconcile with God, uh, others God's way. Unfortunately, we don't have time to, to go there. But I want you to write down Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. There are four things, four tools you can have in your tool bag to pursue re- reconciliation God's way. The first one is putting on God's character. One, putting on God's character. It's Paul says, put on, therefore, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Number two, count others more important than yourself. Number two, count others more important than yourself. This is where we get to bear with one another, bear with another. In fact, bearing someone's burden, it means I care about this person more than my own comfort. So, counting others more important than me. Number three, forgiving them. And if you want to add to that, forgiving them, meaning release the offender from your judgment and entrust them to God. You need to let them go. That is found in verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. And number four, love the way Christ loved you. Love the way Christ loved you. This is found in verse 14, to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Something else I want you to jot down, I would love to go through the four G's that Ken Sandy breaks down in peacemaking for family, but unfortunately I do not have enough time. But what you can do this week is go to our YouTube page under our playlist, go to the Family Matters Conference and look up Session 1, Harmony in the Home by Dr. Lucas Pace. Family Matters Conference, Session 1, Dr. Lucas Pace. He will break down in detail reconciliation in the four G's so that you can reconcile with others today. And actually, that's the urgency that we're going to see in verses 25 and 26. Because murderous anger hinders our worship of God, and murderous anger hinders our relationship with others. So go back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. Jesus tells them to come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Now the context is, you have to remember, remember, this is in our law, this is Roman law. And Roman law, and a lot of the laws of the ancient Near East, but again, we're focused on Roman law because that's why, because Rome ruled Israel at that time. Roman law you know, provided that a plaintiff and the accuser will meet in court, kind of like what we do here. And if they're able to resolve the issue before they get into court, the judge doesn't have to do anything. It's like, you guys have figured it out. Again, something similar to what we do here with lawsuits. You, you sue someone or someone sues you, you try to reconcile it what? Before it gets to court, knowing what? Their court is going to suck. The judgment is probably going to be heavier and more official and something probably beyond what you can pay. And that's what Jesus' picture here. Lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge of the guardian be put in prison. Because truly, remember, that's the word amene, that's the word, the word we get amen. I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. So if you're not going to reconcile now, guess what? You will have to reconcile that number. You think you might be able to push that debt aside. Guess what? The bill will come due. And for the Christian, either we put the bill on Christ, who paid it all, or we reject Christ and say, I'm going to take the payment on myself. Which is what you'll do in hell, by the way. What Jesus is trying to emphasize is here, by the way, the implications that, again, we're guilty. It's not like, I think I'm getting, it's, Hey, you're guilty, and someone's going to sue you rightfully. You better go reconcile right now, and that's the, that's the point. He is emphasizing the urgency to reconcile. And again, this is nothing new. Jesus is referring to something that's a tale as old as time. You can write down Proverbs chapter six one through five. Proverbs chapter six one through five. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given a pledge to a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth caught in the words of your mouth, meaning you promised something and you did not deliver, then do this, verse three, my son, save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Jesus is just reiterating biblical truth, saying if you realize you're guilty, you don't sleep. Don't wait. Don't wait for the right time. Go now and reconcile. The, pa- the picture he's trying to paint here in the, the Proverbs that Solomon's painting here is like, it's, imagine like a, a, a gazelle and a lion. A lion has his claws clawing on the back. The, the gazelle's not taken down yet. Is it taking a nap? Like, oh, you know what? I'm going to wait. To get right for the opportunity to get out of the lion's you know, claws, I'm gonna take a nap, I'm gonna rest, you know, give my arrows of sleep, eat some food, then I'll run from the lion. He's saying, no, you have no time. The lion is gonna devour you. And what God is trying to communicate to you and I this morning is that reconcile now. This unreconciliation is going to devour you. For the unbeliever, it's gonna devour you into hell, and for the Christian, it's gonna devour you for the rest of your life until you reconcile it through the Holy Spirit. Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Christ. He's going to devour, he's going to ache on you, he's going to burden on you. Even to the point of physical ailments, because you're not addressing something spiritually. So Jesus is revealing the urgency to reconcile and the danger of leaving reconciliation unfinished. So for point number three this morning, reconcile with others now. Don't wait. When you go camping and you have a fire, and by the way, I'm a picky camper, and what I mean by that, I'm picky who I go with, depending on how you treat fires, how I uh, hang out with you or not. I'm kind of a killjoy when it comes to fires for some people. But being in California, from California, you in Texas can see, yep, there's another wildfire. It's like, yeah, that's our tornado season, or hurricane season. It's like, someone's going to do something silly and burn down half the state because they're doing something silly. They're not treating the fire well. The fire needs to be tended well. If you ignore the fire, it's just going to go out and poof, now you're cold. And if you use the tools to start the fire improperly, like lighter fluid, the fire will get out of control. Talk to the Canadians. Their country is literally on fire right now. Why? Found out someone did something silly. The point being is when people are, are selfish when can be, they are focused on their, themselves rather than tending to the service of others and this fire they're wondering why, like, why, why did my fire go out? Why why is this fire out of control? What, what happened? You might be here and saying, why, why have my some of my relationships burnt out? Or why are my relationships in chaos right now? Well, God is trying to use the scripture as a mirror to say, you're probably the problem. And you need to grab these tools. As a fire is about to go out, what do we do? You quickly you quickly tend to it. If you see the fire is out of control, what do you do? You quickly address it. When you realize you're in an unreconciled relationship, probably that you're guilty of. Again, there's guilt both ways. You need to quickly attend to it before it gets out of control. So in order to reconcile quickly, you need two things. You need two things. One, you need a repentant heart. You can write down 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. You need a repentant heart. Bragg Bigney in his book, Gospel Treason, sums up a, a, a repentant heart in seven ways. A repentant heart is broken, recognizing the weight of the, their sin. A repentant heart has godly sorrow, a deep remorse for what it did. A repentant heart has confession involved, an ownership of what they've done, not justifying, just owning A repentant heart has genuine repentance, sincere repentance that is marked, as Bigney says, a sincere desire to change and turn away from sinful behaviors, habits, and patterns. A repentant heart seeks restitution, like Zacchaeus. A repentant heart wants accountability; it invites accountability to aid and help to change, to support and encourage. And a repentant heart has fruit of repentance as explained in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, particularly in verse 11. And the last thing this morning is true confession. In order to quickly reconcile, you need to have true confession. You can write down Psalm 51 as your guide, but true confession recognizes the need for mercy, a desire for the removal of sin, and an acknowledgement, not a justification, an acknowledgement of guilt, Sees their offense at God's standards and not their own. Agrees with the justice of God that they deserve Gehenna. The desire for God's righteousness to be placed on themselves. A desire to be close with God and not far from him. A commitment to represent God correctly. And praising God through his work. To change to conform no longer to the image of myself, but the image of the Son Jesus Christ. That is my job right now, as I disciple my little two-year-old son. You might see him in the lobby, run up to me and smack me in the leg, hoping that I chase him. Because one of our favorite activities is to wrestle. Comes up to me and hits me and looks at me with a smile and hopes that I chase him, hopes that I tackle him. He One of his favorite things to do is for me to lay down on the couch and for him to throw his whole body weight on my head, knowing that I can take it. The problem is he likes to do that with other children, in particular with his cousins, and poor little Michael, his cousin Michael in particular. So as we are, and sometimes he actually does that out of anger. And as Candace and I discipline him, we can't help but pray, because we can teach him all we want and point him to the truth and discipline him to the truth. And as we will continue to do, but our prayer is eventually that Christ would grab his little heart. He is cute, but he is a depraved sinner. He's born into sin. And our prayer is that Christ would grab his heart and to teach him how not to hate others. My desire is for my son to sufficiently deal with his hateful heart. So, and a way he does that is to trust in the righteousness of Christ who can cleanse him from his guilt and to empower my son to love others. I want my son to abhor his unrighteous anger. I want my son to pursue proper worship through reconciliation when it's needed. And I want my son to reconcile with others now. But he has to have a changed heart. And that is my prayer for you today, that you would deal with your murderous heart that Jesus revealed so clearly to us this morning. My heart, your heart, all of our hearts. And our prayer is that you would turn to Christ's righteousness to cleanse you from your guilt and to empower you to love others, to hate your unrighteous anger, to pursue proper worship and to reconcile with others today. Our prayers you leave here, maybe make some phone calls or texts so you can worship God now. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and this time as we got to come and worship to you to worship you together. But God is my prayer, Lord, that we would be obedient to your word to worship you by obeying you by reconciling with others. God, I know that's some uncomfortable conversations that need to happen and I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will give us as, as, a, as a church strength to follow through, to encourage one another and into, into the strength to follow through, to pursue reconciliation so that we may glorify you for the world to see. Thank you, Jesus, for being in our place, for being perfect while we failed for never murdering in your hearts or ever, even though we have murdered countless times in our hearts. Thank you for your forgiveness and to promise to cleanse us if we confess our sins to you. So God, is our prayer that you would help our church worship better because we pursue reconciliation through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.